Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome, history friends and patrons, to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. If you're just joining us randomly on episode 19, first of all, what's wrong with you? Second of all, don't worry, you don't have to catch up with all 18 episodes that came before. Just scroll a little bit before and you should see a 30 years war catch-up episode. Listen there if you want to know what's what, so that we're all on the same page when we resume our story. The short version of the story, though, is that Frederick the Elector Palatine has accepted the crown of Bohemia, and now there's an awful lot at stake. Of course, as we've seen, Frederick didn't emerge from out of nowhere to just accept the Bohemian crown. The decision was motivated, above all, by Frederick's sense of mission and justice, as much as it was motivated by his desire to strike against the Habsburgs, and end that Habsburg monopoly over the Holy Roman Empire, which nobody save the Palatinate seemed to be fighting against. In this episode, then, the two camps of the Elector Palatine and Ferdinand II collide, as religious, dynastic and constitutional implications for the transferal of the Bohemian crown caused the Habsburgs to wage a war in the name of recovering this prized position. Has anyone ever loved Bohemia so much as the Habsburgs? Maybe not, but Bohemia was not like other places. Its crown was not like other crowns. Possessing the Bohemian crown, as we've learned, would give you a vote towards deciding who the next emperor would be. Frederick already had one vote. Ferdinand couldn't let him away with getting another one. Especially because surely once Protestants had more votes than Catholics, it would only be a matter of time before a Protestant emperor arrived. Consequently, it would only be a matter of time before the Habsburgs were usurped, and their place atop the Empire's food chain, their guaranteed position as emperors, would surely have to come to an end. There's an awful lot going on, and that's why we released so many of those introductory episodes over the last four weeks. I hope you enjoyed them, and I hope that you're ready to get back into the meat and bones of the story now. Just a quick note on Poland is not yet lost as well for you $5 patrons and above. It is returning next week. I put it on ice for about four weeks because, first of all, I wanted everyone to pay attention, really, and not clog up the feed with anything else. And I wanted everyone to look at this 30 Years War content and be inspired to learn more. But secondly, the longer I drag Poland is not yet lost out for, the less stressed I will be when it eventually runs out and I have to write new episodes. That's just me being honest and as transparent as I can possibly be. But honesty and transparency were in short supply in 1619. What a handy, smooth segue that was. Let's take ourselves to autumn 1619. It was on the day of his 23rd birthday that the rumours were confirmed. Frederick V 
would be required to make the most momentous decision of his life, upon which so much would hinge. Most of us on our 23rd birthday need only choose where the party begins, but Frederick's responsibilities were far grander than that. Failure could very well destroy his upper Palatinate, sandwiched as it was between the Bavarian and Austrian lands, while the lower Palatinate along the Rhine would surely succumb to Spanish invasions. To his pregnant wife Elizabeth, Frederick confessed his anxiety. Believe that I am very troubled about what to decide, he said a few days after learning of his nomination by the Bohemian Estates. In early September 1619, Frederick left Amberg, the capital of the Upper Palatinate, where he had been staying for several months, and made his way to discuss the situation with the members of the Evangelical Union in Rothenburg. The last time Frederick had met his colleagues in the Evangelical Union the previous year, he had been made aware of their hesitation in interfering too extensively in the Bohemian Revolt. Much had changed since that time, of course. Ferdinand was now Holy Roman Emperor, and the Bohemians, selecting the head of this Evangelical Union as their new king, meant that a great deal was now at stake. Unsurprisingly, considering their previous behaviour, strong voices were raised against the policy. Were Frederick to accept the crown of Bohemia, he could well drag the names of those Union princes through the mud as he did so, opening them and their lands up for punitive measures on the grounds that they were guilty through their association with the Elector Palatine and his rash decision. However, while we may expect that a current of caution and fear at the prospect of accepting the crown would be present, it would be incorrect to claim, as Wedgwood does, that nearly all voices were loud against the offer. Now, granted, most of those in favour of Frederick's accepting the Bohemian crown were fairly small fry. The Margraves of Baden and Ansbach were in favour of accepting the crown, as was Christian of Anhalt and Ludwig Camerarius, the latter being Frederick's confessor. The most significant voices against acceptance were the rulers of Württemberg, Hesse and Kulmbach, while on the other hand, the imperial cities of Ulm, Strasbourg and Nuremberg refrained from weighing in on the debate at all. Frederick declared himself undecided and for a month the Bohemians were forced to languish in uncertainty. A vocal supporter of the Bohemian project was Ludwig Camerarius, who cast the venture in divine terms, unsurprisingly since he was Frederick's confessor, and he reasoned that God's providence was at work in these situations. Whether Frederick was convinced by this argument, or whether he had determined from the get-go to accept the offer and merely delayed acceptance for a month, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that for a month, Frederick went to great lengths to investigate the feasibility of the project. While Frederick was in Rothenburg, he requested that his Chancellor, back home in the lower Palatinate capital of Heidelberg, prepare several dossiers and discussions on the critical points, essentially weighing up the pros and cons, so that when he returned from his meeting with the Evangelical Union, there would be evidence to examine and fully formed opinions to bear in mind. The status of Bohemia's electoral monarchy, the ease in mobilising Bohemia's soldiery, the condition that the Palatinate and the lower and upper regions were, and what defences they could provide, how many soldiers he could expect to have in his employ, and how much danger his lands would actually be in, these were all matters on which Frederick requested more information. Testing the waters diplomatically was also critical, so the Emperor's likely position and strategy, in addition to the allies that Ferdinand would lean on, were topics for consideration, and the opinions of virtually all powers of importance, from the Duchy of Lorraine, to the Kingdom of Denmark, to Brunswick, 
were all to be considered. Far from a clueless, ignorant youth then, as some have tried to portray him, Frederick realised for some time that there was little sense in taking on a kingdom that could not be legitimately defended, as the historian Brennan Purcell has noted. It was when Frederick returned to Heidelberg, his capital, in mid-September 1619, that matters began to take a certain course. Upon arriving, his wife Elizabeth promised him that her father's support would be forthcoming, since King James, regardless of his actual stance, would surely be unable to stand aside as his son-in-law ventured down this dangerous path. At the very least, Elizabeth insisted, James would never allow the Palatinate to come under threat, or for his family to suffer humiliation and depredation at the hands of their enemies. The historian Brennan Purcell, who wrote what I believe is the best account of Frederick's life and times, noted that Earnestly wishing that he could rely on England to defend them in the event of attack, Frederick came to believe it. But Frederick had not simply assumed that English support was guaranteed. He had been persuaded that it would be, and while we might lambast the Elector Palatine's naivety in this case, there were sufficient signals emanating out of England to build a substantial case for support. For example, Dudley Carleton, England's ambassador to The Hague, noted in September 1619 that This business of Bohemia is like to put all Christendom in combustion, since the revolution of the world is like to carry us out of this peaceable time, it is better to begin the change with advantage than with disadvantage. For if Bohemia were to be neglected, and by consequence suppressed, the princes of the religion adjoining are like to bear the burden of a victorious army. Where will it stay? God knows, being pushed on by the Jesuits and commanded by the new emperor, who flatters himself with prophecies of extirpating the reformed religion and restoring the Roman church to the ancient greatness. The idea that once the Bohemian revolt was suppressed, the Protestants of Germany would then come under attack was one which held considerable weight even among the moderate observers of events at the time. In addition to this, the Twelve Years' Truce was due to expire between the Spanish and Dutch in April 1621, and when that happened, there was absolutely no guarantee that the Spanish war effort against the Dutch wouldn't spill into the empire, or that Dutch efforts to engage the Spanish wouldn't involve some Protestant-German reinforcement. Ever since the Bohemian Revolt began, the Emperor had made use of the Spanish to reinforce Austria, and the Spanish contribution in conjunction with the papacy had moved Maximilian of Bavaria to help in the resurrection of the Catholic League in July 1619. With these steps taken, and Catholic Europe coordinating itself better than before, it certainly seemed plausible that unless some stand was taken, the Bohemians would be trounced and the Protestants would be immensely vulnerable afterwards. Britain's Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott, was emphatic in his insistence that Frederick should accept the Bohemian crown, and that the king should come to his immediate assistance, the King of England that is, for whatever he needed. Seeing matters in the form of a great Protestant coalition, Archbishop Abbott said that British intervention will comfort the Bohemians, will honour Frederick, will strengthen the Evangelical Union, will bring on the states of the Low Countries, will stir up the King of Denmark and Hungary. I hope being in that same cause will run the same fortune. A public collection for Bohemia, in addition to a recruitment drive, took place, and general enthusiasm within England remained high 
especially among the Puritan communities, which had continued to grow. It became possible to see Frederick as the leader of the forces of godliness sent to overthrow the Antichrist. Indeed, this image was adopted by the pamphleteers of the day in both England and the Netherlands, as was the case with so many of Frederick's friends and the promises they made, though the actual practical contribution that was made to his cause was small. The recruitment drive within the UK only yielded 2,000 volunteers, and these were not ready until mid-1620, while the collection of monies for Bohemia was partially sabotaged, so it was said, by King James himself. This is all to say that England was really struggling to reconcile its king's curious policy of attending to champion Protestantism, while at the same time also preserving peace a contradictory goal, as we will see in later episodes. James was not, as Elizabeth had promised, willing to support Frederick's decision to accept the crown. The legend peddled by Friedrich Schiller is worth repeating, even while we've established that it was based more on his enemy's imagination than actual fact. According to Schiller, a German historian of some renown, who wrote one of the earliest and most recognisable histories of the Thirty Years' War, it was Elizabeth that being Frederick's wife, and her condescending demeanour and vague threats, which had more of an impact than the actual promises she had made about her father's support. Had you, and this is Schiller imagining Elizabeth saying this, confidence enough in yourself to accept the hand of a king's daughter, and have you misgivings about taking a crown which is voluntarily offered you, I would rather eat bread at thy kingly table than feast at thy electoral board. Notwithstanding the baseless nature of such sentiments, it is important not to underrate the impression which the promise of English support had on Frederick's decision-making. His father-in-law had, for the last year, been attempting to mediate the Bohemian Revolt and position England as the peacemaker of Europe, while also seeking a Catholic-Spanish marriage to balance the Protestant Palatine one. Elizabeth didn't seem to realise that her father would never approve of such an adventurous policy at such an inopportune time. A few months later, once Frederick's acceptance of the crown had been made known, she was even assuring the Bohemian rebels that she would represent their case as best as she could to them. English diplomacy was far more complicated than Elizabeth appreciated, and whether she led Frederick astray or not, reliance on English aid to any serious extent turned out to be a major miscalculation, which cost the Elector Palatine dearly. The Dutch contribution, in addition to the English mirage, was also beginning to disappear. Between May and September 1619, the Dutch sent 5,500 men and almost £25,000 to aid the Bohemians in their revolt. Yet between autumn 1619 and spring 1621, only a slightly larger sum than this was sent. By the time the 12 years' truce had expired, the Dutch had mostly ceased to be a practically useful ally and the only true military ally Frederick would be able to lean on was the Prince of Transylvania, Bethlen Gabor, who reached the height of his own powers in November 1619 as he besieged Vienna. In mid-September 1619, despite the lack of information and the worrying signs, it was time to make a decision, so Frederick gathered his most important advisers, Camerarius, his confessor, Anhalt and Johann Albrecht, Count Solms, in addition to the Chancellors of the Upper and Lower Palatinate and the Grand Chancellor of Heidelberg, 
History has told us that Frederick's most important advisors were at this point in favour of accepting the Bohemian crown, but for the moment, they allowed the opposition to speak. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A strong case was made against acceptance. At Rothenburg, where he had met the Evangelical Union a few weeks before, 14 points were raised to rationalise refusing the crown, and only six reasons could be found in favour. It remained to be seen if those six points in favour were stronger than the more numerous arguments and more numerous advisers that argued against acceptance. To even the most optimistic of princes, the cause for the Bohemian crown seemed grim. It was nigh on inevitable, Frederick's advisers said, that once he accepted the crown, the emperor would charge him with an imperial crime, and the imperial ban might even be used against him. Faced with the might of the Habsburgs, who could be expected to stand with Frederick against this menace? There was no precedent for what Frederick was about to do. Nobody had ever held the Palatine and Bohemian votes before, and while the Golden Bull of 1356, which established the electoral framework of the Holy Roman Empire, did not explicitly allow it, It also did not prohibit it. The fact that Frederick might embark on a scheme too fantastic even for the Constitution to imagine was not necessarily a good thing. There were the more practical things to consider, such as how the Catholics of the Empire would respond, most likely with anger, or how the Protestants would respond, most likely not with support, but with jealousy. If Protestants, and therefore the non-committal Evangelical Union, reneged on its duties to aid Frederick, then he would be left in the lurch against a coalition of incensed enemies eager to bring him down. This could be balanced with foreign aid. But before Frederick had even gathered his advisers, it was learned that Venice was against acceptance. The Duke of Savoy had gradually lapsed in his enthusiasm for the Bohemian Revolt since it became clear he would not be emperor, and the French king sent words of encouragement to Ferdinand to crush the Bohemian Revolt from the beginning. Another two arguments were raised against acceptance. First, there was no guarantee that the Bohemians would accept Frederick's son as his heir to that throne. To have requested that Frederick Henry, Frederick's firstborn, succeed him in Bohemia 
would have made a mockery out of the non-hereditary characteristics of that crown, which the rebels in Bohemia had declared their zeal for. Second was the more apocalyptic outcome of acceptance, that Frederick's move would initiate a religious war in the empire, Europe's most compelling nightmare, as Brennan Purcell called it, a conflict between rival confessions which could not be won and which would not end. Outflanked on the front of reason, those advisers in favour of acceptance cautioned Frederick to take the crown based on pure dynastic ambition. Frederick would be availing of a phenomenal opportunity if he acquired the Bohemian crown and managed to hold it. Until it be guaranteed that he did hold it, Frederick should fob off the Bohemians by explaining his delay and hinting he would accept once gestures of support had been received from the English, Dutch and Brandenburgers. With the combined effort, they reasoned, Frederick would be able to hold the Bohemian crown and gradually merge his upper palatinate into the Bohemian kingdom to forge a powerful Palatine Protestant entity in the centre of Europe and in the centre of the Habsburg interests. Such a move would open Frederick up to ridicule and possibly attack from the Habsburgs, these advisers said, but it would so massively boost his prestige among the Protestant powers that the risk appeared to some actually to be worth it. And other arguments were used in favour of acceptance too. If the Bohemians were not granted the candidate they desired, and soon, in their desperation, they could turn to less savoury allies and pledge themselves, perhaps, to the Turks in return for security. If they were defeated and destroyed, Protestantism would surely be crushed in Bohemia so that the Habsburgs could guarantee their position there for decades to come. Once Protestantism was crushed in Bohemia, surely the malignant forces of militant Catholicism would then focus their combined energies on the destruction of other Protestant communities, the Upper Palatinate first and Frederick's allies afterwards. By the very fact that his name had been suggested, it seemed unlikely that Ferdinand would ever leave the Elector Palatine in peace again. Was it not better to strike the first blow now while the opportunity presented itself and the Austrian Habsburgs were then beleaguered and retreating from Bethlen Gabor's invasion? In the end, though, those in favour counselled Frederick that he should wait until word was returned from England and the Netherlands before accepting. What happened next is mostly shrouded in myth and hearsay, but what we do know is that Frederick drafted a letter to the Bohemians on the 21st of September, as did his wife, Elizabeth. Within it, Frederick rationalised his election in spiritual terms, making use of a Calvinist explanation for the circumstances which now provided him with a great opportunity. God had preordained whatever followed, whether this was his triumph or his ruin. Frederick insisted he had never sought to be elected by the Bohemians, which was technically true but a bit misleading, since his ambassador had acted in his name but without his knowledge in Prague since the end of July. Frederick urged the Bohemian estates to pray to God for an orderly outcome to these developments and that his acceptance would bring glory and honour to his name and all Protestants. Finally, Frederick added that he was waiting for advice from London but that as soon as it came, he would send his decision to the Bohemian Estates. If Frederick's answer had been somewhat vague, then shortly after his and his wife's letters were dispatched, matters became a great deal clearer. It seems likely that Frederick genuinely did want to wait and see what his father-in-law had to say, but he felt the Bohemian question more urgently over the last week of September, and this seems to have compelled him to give a definite answer. No doubt, Christian van Holt played a role in emphasising the importance of not hesitating, 
but an underrated factor may well have been the progress which Bethlen Gabor, the Prince of Transylvania, was making at the time. By late September 1619, the Prince of Transylvania had overrun all of Habsburg Hungary and he was poised to invade Austria. Perhaps Frederick feared that if he did not accept definitively, then the Bohemians would offer their crown to the Prince of Transylvania instead, since Bethel and Gabor seemed most capable of defending their interests. Whatever his primary motivations for rushing to clear the air, the result was that Frederick waited barely four days between sending a request for advice to King James and then accepting the Bohemian crown. The implications of this act, as the historian Robert Zahler noted, were problematic indeed for Britain's king. As Zahler wrote, If Frederick hoped to compromise King James by this, he had struck well. The young Palatine had publicly consulted James. Immediately thereafter, Frederick had accepted the crown. What conclusion was the world to draw? James was furious. Not only had his good faith been impugned, but his relations with Spain, the cornerstone of his entire foreign policy, were placed in jeopardy. On the courier sped to Prague with Frederick's answer in his hands, and perhaps the fate of Europe as well in his hands. Did Frederick know what he was doing? We've looked at explanations for his behaviour, as have other historians. A divine calling, a criminally stupid mistake, an act of defiance against a dynasty he despised, an error made in youth, a pawn manipulated by ambitious advisers. All of these are plausible reasons on their own for rationalising what Frederick did. We can also fairly attest that messages of doom and gloom surrounded this decision. Frederick didn't know that he was effectively igniting the Thirty Years' War, but he would have been made aware that a conflict would be on the horizon so long as he challenged the Habsburgs and the Empire so boldly, and so long as he confronted them in Bohemia. What is largely glossed over is the fact that, militarily, matters had not been going well for the Habsburgs, and worse fortune was yet to come. It is certainly worth considering the possibility that, far from ignorant of the Habsburg strategic position, Frederick evaluated the strengths and weaknesses of both sides, and he concluded that at this moment, he stood a good chance of winning. The foundations of Ferdinand's domestic position were far from secure. The emperor had faced a revolt in his Bohemian, Austrian and Hungarian lands on a scale never experienced by Frederick or his allies in their own lands. Ferdinand's precious few friends consisted mostly of Spanish men and Spanish money and Bavarian promises, but the most valuable thing Ferdinand possessed was the petrified neutrality of most of the empire. Few princes in Germany felt enthused enough in either case to fight for their emperor or the elector palatine, and most understandably wanted to remain aloof from the whole thing. While this would pose a grave problem for Frederick within a few years, in the early autumn of 1619, it could also be argued that it provided an opportunity. Surely it was better to launch a coup against the Habsburg enemy now, while the Spanish support was minimal and the Catholic prince's contributions not fully fleshed out. Once the emperor's allies mobilised, Bohemia would surely be crushed, but if Frederick acted quickly and successfully, then forces within and without of the empire could well be persuaded that a peaceful conclusion was preferable to a terrible war. Under those circumstances, with enough pressure applied on his weak position, Ferdinand could be forced to capitulate in return for having his imperial crown guaranteed and his hereditary lands pacified. Of course, this represents an admittedly optimistic interpretation of affairs in the empire. 
as we know, neither branches of the Habsburg family would have allowed such a coup to become permanent. Their position in the empire depended upon the possession of Bohemia, and thus brute force was the only course open to Ferdinand. Such an interpretation also underrates the capabilities of the Catholic League, which was soon to play a pivotal role in returning the status quo and acting as Ferdinand's sword. Frederick may have believed that the hostility and jealousy between the Bavarian Wittelsbachs and the Austrian Habsburgs was greater than it was in fact. His acceptance of the crown while the Habsburgs were at the height of their peril and facing into another siege of Vienna suggests that the Elector Palatine attributed too much credit to Bethlehem Gabor, whose offensive was soon to collapse after Emperor Ferdinand outflanked him with an appeal to his brother-in-law, the King of Poland. The best we can do is interpret Frederick's actions based on what we know about the situation and what Frederick knew at the time. What may appear as a hopeless, reckless, immensely irresponsible gamble to us may have seemed to Frederick like a reasonable risk to take, especially considering the strategic position of the Habsburgs, the promises of his allies, and, of course, the divinely ordained nature of the whole scheme. Frederick had officially accepted the crown of Bohemia by September 28, 1619. By that point, it was too late to go back, and Frederick would now have to go all for broke if he wanted to secure the Bohemian crown and guarantee the safety of the Palatine cause. For the moment, this appeared like an achievable goal. Ferdinand was facing rebellion in Bohemia, Moravia and Silesia. His Austrian estates were almost all united against him and with the rebels, and the Hungarian threat grew worse with every passing week. The new emperor's allies were mostly found in Spanish and papal money, and some Spanish troops, but these had not proved sufficient to land a killer blow against the rebels. In spite of some victories, most notably at Zablati in June 1619, a victory which effectively revived the Catholic League in the process, the rebels remained in good strength and good spirits. Faced with the determined opposition of these rebels, Ferdinand was in no realistic position to meet the challenge posed by his dynastic and political enemy, Frederick V. Indeed, in at least a few respects, Frederick's decision to lunge forward into the abyss appears bold and brilliant. Had it succeeded after all, and had the forces of militant Protestantism in the empire triumphed over the brittle command which Ferdinand wielded over his lands, then the histories would surely remark on Frederick's genius rather than his rashness. As matters stood in late September 1619, though, the emperor's back was against the wall, and he had no choice other than to come out fighting. News of Frederick's acceptance of the Bohemian crown necessarily transformed the Bohemian revolt into a dynastic war. Frederick was trying in this act to directly threaten and then replace the Habsburg supremacy, and if Ferdinand did not stop him, then the glories of the Habsburg family would end with his reign. Frederick threw down the gauntlet to his emperor, but it seems he didn't realise exactly how seriously this threat would be taken, or what resources, powers and men the emperor would move in order to salvage his position. As weak as Ferdinand was in autumn 1619, he would never be this weak again. A storm was brewing, and over autumn 1619 it moved out of the Catholic nucleus of Europe towards Frederick's lands at an alarming rate. As he had grossly overestimated the zeal and abilities of his allies, so too had Frederick underestimated the determination of Ferdinand to resist him and the actual support he could draw on. Even if, contrary to his coronation oath, the act of resisting Frederick 
brought foreign troops into the empire, Ferdinand would do it. He had, of course, done this on a limited scale already. Nothing would be held back. No expense would be spared. No mission was more sacred. The livelihood of the Habsburg family was at stake, and nothing could be allowed to prevent Ferdinand from crushing the young Palatine upstart and teaching him a lesson which no power, Protestant or Catholic, would soon forget. The stage was set, and with his conscience at rest, Frederick moved to claim what was his. In the next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll examine the full consequences of the Elector Palatine's actions, as Europe and the Empire reacted to his moves, and anxiety, fear and opportunism among his peers became the order of the day. Once so secure in his position and beliefs, Frederick would see the situation reversed, and his worst nightmares fulfilled. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends. But until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 19 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.